Hello everybody again, this is Anthony Harris with Looking Back, Moving Forward. I want to thank you, as I always do, for tuning in to my podcast and this episode, which I think is going to be an exciting one, just as, it, as the others I think have been quite exci- exciting and, and informative. What I'm going, to talk, I'm going to talk about today is I want to share with you some more stories. In some previous episodes, I have talked about what it was like for me and sort of viewing the civil rights movement in Hattiesburg, Mississippi through my lens and through my experiences. And I just I think it's so important that I share those with you. And I've talked in the past about the first time I was introduced to Jim Crowism, when I can remember the first time with my granddad and going to the ice cream parlor and having to go to the, quote, colored um, window to be confronted every time I wanted to go to a public water fountain, be forced to choose between being colored and white, um, having to, by law, to go to segregated schools. And I'm going to talk at a future uh, episode about what it was like being a black kid in an all-black school. That was a, looking back on it now, that was that was the best time I ever had in my life. And it was, it was so foundational. And I, I will, I want to spend some time talking about that. But t- this time I want to share some of these stories with you that further illustrate how how bad things were in Hattiesburg, how bad things were all across Mississippi and indeed the South. This was a terrible time in our nation's history. It was, it was Jim Crow at its worst, I think. And, and I was a part of that and I'm always feeling, uh, I tell people that I'm blessed and feel fortunate that I was a participant in and a product of that, that glorious movement that did so much to change and transform lives there in Hattiesburg and in Mississippi. The first, I want to, first story I want to tell you about uh, occurred on January 22nd, somewhere around that time uh, of 1964. And January 22nd, 1964 was called Freedom Day. Freedom Day in, in Hattiesburg was a time when a number of people from outside of Hattiesburg came to Hattiesburg to help with voter registration to get more people excited about this fledgling civil rights movement we had you know, some really name, marquee name people, um, John Lewis and um, Bob Moses, uh, Fannie Lou, Mrs. Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer, to name a few who, who were part of this, this, this movement in, in Hattiesburg and on, on Freedom Day. We also had clergy from different parts of, of the country who were members of the National Council of Churches and they, the National Council of Churches dispatched uh, clergy who were members of their organization of different faiths and different denominations to to come to to Hattiesburg to help with this effort to get more black people registered to vote and I give you that sort of the the backdrop of why my story that I'm going to tell you how it came to be one of the other things that was going on in the movement in the civil rights movement was there were there was this passive resistance. There was this there, there was mass demonstrations demonstrations in the streets and on picket lines and marches and so forth. Uh, you know, bodies out there carrying signs and chanting and singing songs to to bring attention to the the racism and racial discrimination that was present in in, in the South. And interestingly enough, and I think this was a a a, a blessing that the national news media was also paying, paying attention to what was going on in Hattiesburg and other places across the South. 
so the I will call the the civil rights forces and the anti civil rights forces. They they played this interesting chess match, and it went something like this: because of all of these demonstrations and marches that were garnering a lot of national media exposure, it was really embarrassing the state of Mississippi. Uh, the leadership, the white power structure, said we have to end this. This is not good. This is not good for our state. It's not good for business. It's not good for investment. It's not good for tourism. All of those things that uh, were sort of the economic engine of the state at the time. And they said, here's how we can make this civil rights movement and these demonstrations just go away. And when these marches and demonstrations go away, guess what? The media will also go away. And if the media goes away, people around the country will not know what's going on in Hattiesburg. So that's exactly what they did. They jailed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of adult black men and women, put them in, in parchment prison and put them in all kinds of uh, uh, jail situation, incarcerated them for just for marching, exercising their constitutional right to, to demonstrate and to, to protest. That was the strategy of the anti-civil rights forces. Let's, let's get these people off the streets. If there are no marches, if there are no demonstrations, then the media will lose interest and, and this civil rights movement will just go away. Well, the pro-civil rights forces said, okay, we get that. You go ahead and you put these adults in jail. Our strategy is to replace those adults with children. And we saw this happening all across the South, in Alabama, Georgia, Mississippi, where young people, uh, children, if you will, teen teenagers and adolescents, were out there in marches and demonstrations. And the, the approach by the pro-civil rights forces is that if you're going to put these adults in jail, we'll put the children out there, and we dare you to treat these children the way you have treated the adults. And of course, you've seen archived video of how these adults were treated with the water hoses, the billy clubs, and the police dogs. So that was the challenge. We dare you, we dare you to treat these children in the inhumane way that you've treated these adults. So as children, you know, the decision was, okay, let's put the kids out there in these marches. Now the counter move to that counter move among the anti-civil rights folks was to pass local ordinances, local laws, municipalities and cities and county entities, they passed these laws that said that no one under the age of 18 will be allowed to demonstrate, to march, or be on a picket line. That was their response to kids being on the picket lines and marches. Well, everybody knew that was not legal. Uh, the U.S. Constitution does not say a person has to be of a certain age in order to march or demonstrate. So this cold, wet January morning, three young boys show up at, show up at the Forest County Courthouse where marches were and pickets were going on almost on a daily basis. And those three boys were my brother James Harris, James Harris Jr., to be exact, a friend of mine, Ratio Jones, the late Ratio Jones, and yours truly, Anthony Harris. So we show up there in defiance of this law, 
And we were picketing around the, the courthouse. We were just peacefully. We weren't obstructing traffic. We weren't doing anything to... Uh, be to to impede any kind of pedestrian traffic or anything like that and police officers were cruising I think they probably got word that we were out there and these officers spotted us they did a u-turn there on Main Street and pulled up to the curb and you could hear the squealing of the tires and the rubber burning I mean these guys were making a, a real show of this and they jumped out these officers jumped out of the vehicle rushed over to the three of us, ripped the signs off our necks, the picket signs that we had around our necks, and threw us in the back of the squad car. And that was scary enough, just being thrown in the back of a squad car. And for momentarily there, I was feeling a little bit protected, feeling a little secure and safe because my brother was on one side of me and Ratio was on the other, momentarily, as I said, because I felt both of my flanks, both my sides were being protected. But Mr. Lawrence Giot was also there, and he did everything he could to reassure, reassure us. And Lawrence Giot was, uh, was an icon in the movement as well. He was with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, or SNCC. And he, he was out there to monitor what was going on with, this, with these uh, marches. And he walked over to where we were sitting in the back of the squad car. And he said, boys, don't worry everything's going to be okay. Well, we knew full well it was not up to Mr. Giat as to whether or not we would be okay. It was going to be up to these two men in the front seat of the squad car as to whether or not we were going to be okay. And that point was driven home very clearly as we drove from the courthouse as the officer in the passenger seat he picked up his two-way radio, and these were his exact words. Headquarters, have the dogs been fed today? Oh, they haven't. Well, we're bringing fresh meat in for them. Now, this guy is trying his gut-level best to scare the daylights out of us. And folks, in my case, he is succeeding. He is scaring the daylights out of me because... I know what kind of dogs he's talking about. He's not talking about chihuahuas and poodles and dachshunds. He's talking about attack German Shepherd dogs. He was going to feed us. We were going to be a meal for these attack vicious German Shepherd dogs. They got us to the police station. They and I was shaking. I was shaking from the cold and from the fear as we walked into the police station. The only thing that was on my mind, and you can imagine what was on my mind as I entered the police station. Yes, I was listening for the sound of barking dogs. I needed to know where are the dogs? Where's my escape route? What am I going to do if they start chasing me? Where are they going to take us to feed us to these dogs? That's the only thing that was on my mind at the time. As we continued to walk down this long corridor, they took us into an interrogation room. And in this room were some chairs, but we were not allowed to sit in those, chair, in those chairs. They said, they made us sit on the floor. Our, we sat on this cold, wet cement floor with our backs pressed up against this cold, wet cement wall. And we just sat there. And they kept 
trying to terrorize us again, trying to scare the daylights out of us as if we weren't already scared enough from the dogs, from being threatened, uh, being threatened to be fed to the dogs. They kept with the verbal attacks, telling us how wrong we were that the Mississippi Constitution trumped the U.S. Constitution. And these city laws and these local laws that says that we were lawbreakers took precedence over what was in the U.S. Constitution. And my older brother James took exception to that. He, he challenged his officer and said, no, the, the U.S. Constitution doesn't say we don't have the right uh, to, to be out here. We have the perfect right to be out here. And the officer didn't like being challenged that way. So he got up from where he was sitting and he approached us. He walked, started walking toward us and he pulled out of his back pocket a blackjack. Now, for those who don't know what a blackjack is, it's a, it's a piece of lead, maybe a foot long, that's wrapped in black leather that officers use to subdue people they're trying to arrest. And he started moving towards us in a very menacing, threatening way and, and, and tossing that blackjack from hand to hand, moving toward us. And he said, boys, you know what we do with this? And we knew. He said, this is what we use to beat black people's rear ends with. Now, he did not say black people. He said the N-word. And he didn't say rear end. He used profanity. And he was, as far as we knew, he was serious about this. And I thought at that moment, oh my God, we managed to not get eaten by the dogs. Now this man is going to beat us to death with his blackjack in this room. And there's nothing, absolutely nothing we can do about it. Nothing. And about that time, the door to this interrogation room opens up with this loud bang. Bam! That, that door just swung open. In rushes this small, petite black woman yelling and screaming at these officers. Let them go right now. You let them go right now. I said, let them go. And folks, that was my mom. That was Daisy Harris coming to the rescue. I have never, ever been as happy to see my mother as I was when she went into that, came into that room. Now, here's what was remarkable about that, about that scene was she didn't knock on the door. She didn't ask, may I please come in? She didn't say, would you please let these boys go? No, she demanded that they go. And she was motivated by two things in doing that. I think one, I know for one, she was motivated by the fact that an injustice was taking place in this, in this room. And my mother always stood up for justice. She said, we have to seek justice and resist evil. That was her mantra. We've got to seek justice and resist evil. And she knew, again, she knew that an injustice was taking place, so she needed to stand up to that injustice. The second thing that motivated her, obviously, was two of her babies were in that room. And any parent, especially a mother, is going to react in a very caring, aggressive way, if you will, to protect her children. And that's what she did. She told these men, do what you need to do to me. I'm an adult, but you let these kids go. You have no right to hold them here. You're scaring them to death, so you let them go right now. And I was just so proud of her, just so impressed with her stance here because, again, she didn't ask, please, may I? No. She said, do it. Do what you need to do to me, but 
you let these kids go. She was willing to sacrifice her safety, her life, her livelihood, her freedom. She was willing to sacrifice all of that in order to save us and to rescue us. Because let me tell you, folks, there, were nobody, there was nobody else in that room, probably in that entire police station who wanted to rescue us. Their intent was to scare us. And they succeeded. They did, they did an excellent job. But to, um, to counteract that, my dear mother came in and she let them have it. And the end of that story is people will ask me sometimes, you know, what did, what did the police officers do? I said, well, these officers responded to my mom the same way we kids responded when she raised her voice. And that is, you'd better do what this woman said. Because she didn't, she didn't take stuff, and she didn't, she didn't, she didn't back down. She was very serious, and uh, we were that way coming up, and in, in, in our family, when she said do something, you better do it. And she was willing to go to the mat for us. So these officers did what she asked, demanded that they do, which was to let us go home. And that, that was the end of that story. But it was a very scary time, as you can imagine. The next story I want to tell you about uh, occurred in 1966. This was 12 years after the Brown decision. Of course, we know the Brown decision said that uh, ruled that uh, separate but equal was not constitutional and schools and other public accommodations had to integrate or desegregate. Well, this particular year, 1966, I was transitioning from seventh grade to eighth grade and moving into my eighth grade year, the uh, school district uh, came up with a desegregation plan called Freedom of Choice. Freedom of Choice allowed, as the name would suggest, allowed students and their parents to choose the school they wanted to attend. And I chose to go to W.I. Thames, which was an all-white junior high school. A couple of my friends, James Six and Benton Dwight, they and their families made the same decision as well. Now, why did we want to do this? Well, we did it because school segregation was one of the last vestiges of, of Jim Crowism in our town. Uh, progress had been made up to 1966. Some significant progress had been made, but the school segregation issue was still one that needed to be challenged. So the, the city of Hattiesburg and the, the um, school district, they came up with this plan, again, called Freedom of Choice, which, as I said, you could choose the school you wanted to attend. So I attended, I chose to attend this particular school, and there were five of us who chose to go to this all-white junior high school. There were, again, James Six and Benton Dwight, and two sisters, Algery Clark and Valisa Clark. Uh, Valisa was going into the ninth grade, and the other four of us were going into the eighth grade. And I remember this so well, because back in those days, school started the day after Labor Day. That was a Tuesday. And walking into this all-white school on that Tuesday, it was, it was a surreal moment. It was scary. It was, we, we were in uncharted waters, obviously, not knowing what to expect, not knowing how we're going to be treated and going into a junior high school you know junior high school junior high school kids can be pretty um pretty rude to each other 
and they can say some pretty vicious things. And then when you factor race into it, it gets even worse. So we were warned when we went there by our parents and about and by others in the in the community. Expect some terrible things to be done to you. Expect some ugly things to be said to you and about you. Expect that your teachers may have low expectations of you because some of them don't think you can be or that you are as smart as white kids. So we went there on that Tuesday just ready to be like any other student in the school. We wanted to learn. We wanted to um, show that we were just as capable of making good grades as, as, as white kids were. Well, by warning us that bad things could happen to us if we were there, that was sort of an understatement. I think I was called the N-word every day that I was there. And after a while, you just become desensitized. You become numb, become numb to it where you just don't pay attention to it. You hear it and you just keep, keep moving. Well, one particular day as I was walking to one of my classes, minding my own business there in the hallway of W.I. Timms, and this white student, he was a classmate. When I, I hesitate to call him a, a classmate. He, we went to school together. We were not mates at all, but we attended the same school. As I passed this guy in the hallway, he just hauled off and spat on me. He was aiming for my face, I think, but the spittle landed on my pant leg. And his friends saw what he did, and they started jeering and taunting me and wanting me to come back and, and do something. They, they were, that was a proud moment for them. Here's what I did. I went to the nearest restroom, got a, piece, got a paper towel, and wiped off my pant leg, and went on to my next class. And I ask young people today, and I'll ask you, what would you have done had that been you who was spat on? You can imagine the responses and you can ask, see what your own response is. You know, young people today would say, I would go back and I'd hit him. I would slap him. I was, I would just, we would just get it on. We would fight. Okay. I said, here's what I did. I went to the, as I said, I went to the nearest restroom, got my, wiped my leg off and, and went on about my business. And every step I took towards that restroom, I had to fight the urge to go back and do just what some people say I should have done. Because that was an emotional response. Anytime somebody does something as awful and disgusting as spit on you, the natural, normal reaction is to retaliate. That's understandable. That's, a, that's an emotional reaction, an emotional response. What I chose to do was to not respond from my heart, but to use my head. My head told me that if I get into a fight with this guy, the bigots will have achieved their goal. The races in the school and the town would have achieved their goals because they would have said, see, they're black kids and white kids should not be going to the same schools. They will just fight all the time. And the bigots would have, would have further realized that the way you can make this an all-white school is by, the, by Friday of this week, you go and spit on every other black person and if they react the way Harris reacted, it'll be an all-white junior high school again. So I had to think about that in that moment. The other thing that kept me moving to that bathroom and onto my next class was something that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about. And it, it's something that I took to heart and I internalized it. And, and I think what he said was as important today 
as it was back then. And this is what he said. If we continued this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, we're going to end up being a blind, toothless society. I think you understand what Dr. King meant by that. And that's, that's what I was feeling inside. That's what was in my head and my heart was to keep moving. And there are people who ask, well, didn't you want to get even with him? Didn't you want to? Don't you? No, I don't want to get even. I want to get ahead. Because to get even with him is to be where he is. I don't want to be where he is. I don't want to be where this guy who spat on me is. I want to be ahead of him. So that was my, my mantra for a long time. I don't want to get even. I want to get ahead. And I was able to do that. And um, one of the things that, that I learned from that experience at WITMs, I was there for two years, eighth and ninth grade. And I bring it to the present time because uh, if what it, what it did for me was to teach me perseverance. It, it taught me to have confidence in myself because even when people have low expectations for you, uh, you, you can't really give in to that. You can't internalize that and let their belief about you become a truth for you. And I just, I, I got to be where I am today and I'm not done yet. I'm still, I'm still in the process of becoming. Um, I think that experience that I had for those two years at Tim's, again, taught me, again, to have confidence in myself, to, uh, to hang in there, to not back down, to use my head, not just retaliate with my emotions. And, and I just really, uh, I feel blessed to have had that experience. It doesn't mean I wouldn't have had, would not have had that same or similar experience had I gone to a, a black junior high school or a black high school. Because I think at those schools, I would have had just the opposite experience, actually, because I would have had teachers and classmates who would have supported me, who would have encouraged me, who would have uh, respected me. But because I did not have that, I had to work even harder to, to maintain my own self-respect and to try to get others to respect me in the process. And that was just a, something that, I, that, stay, that stays with me today. It, it stuck with me throughout my time in the public schools and in college and even beyond my, my college degree. Well, uh, one more story about what happened at, at Tim's. And this story is, is one that I... It's, it's very poignant, I think, and it, it, it's, it illustrates the, the depravity and the cruelty of, of what uh, some young kids can have in junior high school. I went to school on April 5th, 1968. That was a Friday. As we know, Dr. King was assassinated on Thursday, April 4th, 1968. And as I was in my room, I, and we were in our homeroom class, these white students were having this celebration. They were whooping it up. They were saying, hey, Wick, how'd you get from Memphis so quick? Hey, Chuck, nice aim. The king is dead. I mean, they were just having a ball. They were celebrating. They were laughing. Just having this, this wild time about the death of Dr. King. I'm the only black student in the class, right? And they are making sure I'm hearing every word, every nasty word they're saying. They're trying to get a reaction from me. They were trying to figure out, is he angry? Is he sad? Is he going to cry? Is he going to try to jump up and hit one of us? What's he going to do? 
So I just kept it all inside of me and I just sat there. And then my mind drifted back for a moment to two weeks before all of two weeks before Dr. King was assassinated. When Dr. King came to Hattiesburg, this is around March 17th or 18th of uh, a couple of weeks before he was assassinated. Now, here's a story about that. Dr. King was scheduled to be at Mount Zion Missionary Baptist Church around 6.30 or 7 o'clock that evening. And the church was packed. I mean, not a seat was empty at that time. They brought out folding chairs to put them in the aisle to accommodate the overflow crowd. The, the balcony at Mount Zion was packed. Nobody, no black person in town wanted to miss the opportunity to see and to hear the great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Of course, we had seen him on television many, many times, and we, we had such respect for him, and we, we saw him as our leader in the civil rights movement. And now we have this opportunity to, to actually hear him with our own ears and see him with our own eyes. And what a wonderful opportunity that was. Well, 7 o'clock, Dr. King wasn't there. We were there, but he wasn't there. 7.30, same thing. 8 o'clock, same thing. And we began to think, wait a minute, where is Dr. King? Because we knew he was up in Laurel, Mississippi, which was just north of Hattiesburg. And Laurel at that time was the home of the White Knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And they were a very violent, very vicious, ruthless group of, of Klansmen. And we thought, well, maybe we, we pray to God that something didn't happen to, to, to Dr. King there because these guys would have loved to have been the person to take out Dr. King. But around midnight, Dr. King shows up. And folks, that church was as packed at midnight as it was at 6.30 or 7 o'clock that evening. Again, nobody wanted to miss this. And, and I remember just being like a laser focused in on his words, his manner of speaking, his, his great oratory skills were, were on, on just fine display. And I, it was the content of what he was saying and the style in which he was saying it that, that mesmerized me. Then I was, just, I was just sitting on the edge of my seat, just glued into to this great man. I remember so vividly he wore a, a green suit, a two-piece green suit. And, and, and I just thought, boy, you know, we're blessed here. <laughs> we're fortunate that we get to hear him and get to see him. And, and by us being there at that hour of the night, I think it, 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 there are two things that came from that. One, it said something about us as black people in Hattiesburg, that we, we wanted to hear him. And the fact that it was late, it was in the wee hours of the morning, the next day people had to go to work, had to go to school. Those were not going to be reasons not to go hear Dr. King. Nobody wanted to miss that. It also says something very special about Dr. King himself. Because logic says that he could have very easily said, guys, look, it's, it's late. I'm tired. I think I want to go crash. I'm just going to go and maybe send a message to those good folks in Hattiesburg and just tell them I'm sorry I couldn't be there. But no, he showed up. And showing up is important. You can't guarantee what's going to happen after you show up, but just showing up means so much. And he did that. And that was such a, a, a gift to us that he thought enough of us to, to show up when he could have just gone somewhere and just crashed for the night. Well, after I stopped thinking about that, I'm back in my classroom where my classmates are whooping it up and celebrating Dr. King's death. 
Uh, I'm waiting for my homeroom teacher to walk in and maybe say something to these people, get them to quiet down, get them to be more respectful, and try to tell them that what you're doing is wrong. This is this is cruel. This is this is un, this is unnecessary. This is immoral. How do you celebrate the death of a human being, and and let alone the the, the death of somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. Well, that's what I was hoping. I think if if I'd been the teacher, that's probably what I would have said. That's what. I, so when the teacher walked in, I expected her to say that, but she didn't say that. She simply said, "Okay, boys and girls, you're being too loud. Hold down the noise." And that was the end of it. They held down the noise, but the damage had already been done. It showed me that we had some pretty cruel, uh, had some cruel uh, roommates. I mean, classmates. Um, as I said earlier, high school kids, junior high school kids, can and adolescents they can be, they can be pretty uncaring and pretty vicious in some of the words that they use and some of the things they, they they utter. And, and when you factor race into it, sometimes it make it just even worse. And that's what happened. But as I said earlier, I learned from all of that. I learned to I learned patience. I learned perseverance. I learned um, that I, I, to have confidence in myself. I learned not to live down to people's expectations of me, not to live down to what they think I ought to be and ought to do and ought to say. And that was a good experience for me. And those are, uh, are precious moments and precious memories that I have about growing up there in Hattiesburg. And I just wanted to share those with you um, to let you know that that's where I came from. Those are the things that motivated me looking back, moving forward. And those are, I build upon those experiences uh, moving forward. And, and the other thing that I want to say is one of the reasons that we talk about those things, some people say, well, that's the past. Why are you talking about the past? Well, there were so many mistakes made in the past. And if we don't acknowledge those mistakes as a nation, as a society, and acknowledge the, the things that we did wrong, we're going to repeat them again. And we can already see evidence in our country where we're trying to go back to those times and we just cannot afford to do that. But if you never knew these things happened in the past, if nobody told you that these things happened, when they start to happen now, you think, oh, that's never happened before. Oh yes, it has happened before. And, and as they say, knowledge is power, so let's use that power. Well, I'm going to stop here and thank you once again for listening. I, I do appreciate any opportunities to engage in conversations with you, either online or in person. If you, if you have that, if we have that opportunity, uh, my email address again is aharris007 at yahoo.com. That's aharris007 at yahoo.com. I would love to hear from you. Ask me a question. Debate me. Agree with me, whatever it is, but I would love to, to hear from you. And also, as I say each time, if you have some ideas for a topic uh, for, a for a future episode, I would love to hear that. In the meantime, guys, y'all take care and hang in there and be safe. Goodbye.